Diplomatic progress and a vaccine impasse. Two big stories today. The Putin-Biden summit, or the Biden-Putin summit, depending on choice, and quite what's going on with coronavirus. OK, not necessarily fun topics, but we've got to talk about them. I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. But now, on with today's programme. It's interesting that when we come to talking about the summit, that on the one hand, frankly, there were very, very low expectations on every side. But nonetheless, there was also a certain degree of, I suppose it's fair to call it, excitement. The Trump era had been, after all, a rather egregiously unusual episode. And therefore, the thought of an American president who really was an American president and the Russian president coming together it had that sense of something significant, a potentially pivotal moment. And in a way, in its own very, very small way, I think it is. Before that, it's worth noting, though, that uh, as ever, the the Russian press had had some fun with some rather more kind of bizarre articles. We had a piece on the chromatic significance of the ties that Putin and Biden respectively were wearing. Um, I'm sure it will come as to no one's surprise to hear that, in fact, apparently it was deemed that Putin had, had the best one. But also Komsomolskaya Pravda ran a particularly fascinating slash lunatic semiological analysis of the globe that was in the backdrop of the room in which Biden and Putin met, trying to divine all kind of meanings from which way was it tilting and what was it showing. And it was in fact, it was regarded as in effect curtsying to Biden. So presumably they were trying to suggest that the Swiss were somehow on the American side. But anyway, putting that all to one side, I think, look, this summit clearly was about as successful as anyone could have hoped. I know some people were saying, oh, what's the point, either drawing on a historical record of Soviet and American summits, or making the point that, look, there's no particular treaty or whatever on the table. But in some ways, that's the point. Look, summits like this are important precisely at the beginning or the end of a process. When you've got a treaty that all the technical people have got to 95% agreement, and you need the intervention of the principals to actually butt heads, make deals, and get that last 5% sorted, that's a summit. Or, alternatively, at the very beginning of a process, when you have absolutely nothing on the table, absolutely nothing is happening, and you need to to break the logjam. Well, that's also a role for a summit, and that's exactly where we found ourselves here. This this current situation, it's not just simply that the relationship between Russia and the West, obviously particularly the United States, is in a fairly abysmal place, but it's also precisely that it seemed to be statically abysmal. And what we did get out of this was agreements to talk. Agreements to talk about strategic stability, which is about much more than just nuclear weapons, but also cyber. And just more generally, the sense that 
there can be and should be some kind of dialogue between the countries. The ambassadors returning to their embassies, their respective embassies, again, is both significant and also symbolic. The trouble is, of course, that uh, much of the conversations was behind the scenes and people make their assumptions based on what was actually said in the press conferences, as if they're the same thing. Well, of course, they're not. I mean, for example, in the press conference, Putin, who had quite a few uh, Western journalists there, had to field all kinds of questions about human rights and Navalny and so forth. And so naturally, he just pivoted to the usual whataboutism. Ah, but in America, people get shot all the time just walking down the street, etc., etc. Now, look, I'm sure that in the actual conversation, Navalny and human rights were raised. Biden said so. And I'm sure Putin would have given the usual kind of robust response. I get the feeling, though, and I'll come back to that in a moment, that in some ways it would have been token, ritual, call it what you will. But it certainly would not be the kind of thing that would have been overshadowing the event as a whole. And likewise, you know, Biden immediately is facing a whole sort of battery of, frankly, often rather partisan attacks, saying that, look, he gave Putin this an opportunity to pose and preen as a great world leader. And it, it is significant, after all, that Biden meets the G7 as a group. He meets European leaders as a group. He meets NATO leaders as a group. And then he sits down with Putin. You know, no wonder that the Russians were, were very happy with the optics of that. And what did Biden get out of it? Well, look, he wasn't going to get something solid out of it. The point is that a meeting like this is not a reward for good behaviour. It is a chance to try and deal with bad behaviour, to put it bluntly. And out of it, well, I mean, certainly the, uh, the sense was that, in fact, they had both come out of it feeling that it, this was meaningful and effective conversation. Putin was very, f- uh, frankly, positive about Biden. And interestingly, I mean, he, you know, he made the point about that, you know, they talked for more than two hours and not every, every leader could do this and such like. I mean, he's clearly indicating that the Russian press, which up to now has often enjoyed portraying Biden as two steps short of senility, really ought to stop that because it's certainly not the case and probably also not helpful. And likewise, Biden was not going to come away saying that he thought Putin was a lovely, lovely man with actually a a deep and warm soul after all. I mean, the uh, way this whole event was framed was precisely to emphasise the notion that this was a business-like gathering. This was not barbecue on the beach, G7 style. Um, They weren't even going to, again, I, I love the poetic way they put it, break bread. But anyway... Despite that, you know, Biden came out in a very much um, diplomatically avoiding calling Putin names, going down the hole, you know, reaffirming that he thinks Putin is a killer or anything like that. So yes, they said some, some nice things about each other, but this is diplomacy. The point is that in some ways that's the whole point of the deal. What the Americans want is that Russia should be stable and predictable. And as I've noted in the past, I mean, the trouble is with that situation is that if you feel that you are hard done by, you have no particular desire to be stable and predictable. You don't really want to protect the status quo. And that's where Russia is. They've realized that, in fact, America pays attention in the main 
when they cause a fuss. This whole summit was in many ways, a, I hesitate to say reward, but an outcome of their massive troop escalation on Ukraine's borders earlier this, this year. And I suspect it was part of the price, in effect, for their standing down most of their forces. But on the other hand, what America can offer is precisely some sense that it takes Russia seriously and provides it with that kind of intangible respect, which is, after all, so much of the force that is driving Putin and co. And exactly is what Biden was providing with his rhetoric of saying things about how two great powers are the proud history, great responsibility to the world, and so on. And as a result, it's trying to convey this notion that there is some advantage in being positive, that you don't always have to rely on being a spoiler or an antagonist in order to get what you want. So from Biden's point of view, I think what he was projecting, and obviously, again, especially in his press conference, he made a point about how central America's values were to the whole notion of America and American foreign policy and such like. But what he also made it clear was he raised Navalny's case. He raised the issue of Ukraine. Well, raising is fine from the Russians' point of view, but he wasn't making threats. He wasn't saying, if you don't do X, then we will do Y on this. And in that respect, this was really about a pivot, a pivot to what is an unfortunately now sort of a word that is a, a phrase that is associated with Trump, America first, rather than American values first. And this actually, in a very, very pragmatic level, makes sense for a variety of reasons. First of all, I mean, actually we've seen, and you know, actually I think the, the American values first really was a strong leitmotif of the Obama presidency. And what we've seen is, first of all, that in practical terms, there's really not a lot that America can do. It cannot reshape Russia. It cannot actually make Russia more democratic, more transparent, more protective of the human rights of its citizens and so forth. If anything, actually to push these convinces this rather paranoid regime of the Kremlin precisely that they are under a Gibridnaya Voina attack, a values-based offensive, precisely to try and use that to undermine its rule. And it, it, it pushes back. And therefore, who suffers? Well, people who are in the opposition, people who are looking to be able to speak freely, independent media, let alone media that is in any way connected to the West. But more broadly than that, Ukrainians, Georgians, Belarusians are also in the front line. If the Russians continue to believe that America is committed to some kind of if not regime change campaign in Russia, but certainly a campaign to strip Russia of its sphere of influence, strip it of its important significance, its power in the outside world, then that is the prism through which it will look at everything. It will look at Ukraine, it will look at Georgia, it will look at Belarus, as well as looking at its own opposition, not for what they are, but as simply tendrils of the octopoidal American threat. So actually reassuring Putin in some ways, not, I mean, not with actually to, not, not telling him, because after all that, that's not going to convince him, but demonstrating that yes, America absolutely has interests, things like, you know, hacking its critical infrastructure and such like. And yes, it also, it does care what happens in Ukraine. It does care what happens in, in Belarus. 
but that above all it should be understood through the prism of its interests, that's something that Putin and Putin's people can understand. And it is actually the way to get some kind of potential progress. Again, it's not going to it's not going to get, I don't know, Russian forces pulling out of the Donbass next Wednesday or anything like that. But in terms of slowly building a situation in which there could at some point be some kind of meaningful conversation, some kind of meaningful progress, especially given that the real purpose is, again, if we take Ukraine, is actually to make it too strongly defended, too effective, too legitimate, to be digestible from Russia's point of view. I mean, again, this is the thing. You cannot force these things on Moscow. What you can do is give Moscow the encouragement and the space to realise what some things are really not in its interests. So in that respect, I mean, I think, again, this is an encouraging start. Biden himself said, look, we're going to have to see in six months, 12 months, what actually comes of it. You know, will there be any slackening of the sort of cyber attacks? And let's be honest, there's only a limit to what the Kremlin can do. But certainly the sort of cyber attacks, and I stress attacks, not espionage, which could be reasonably either pinned on the Kremlin or which one would have expected the Russian state to have addressed. You know, we'll, we'll have to see what, what the tempo of that kind of attacks. Does it change? Likewise, we'll, we'll have to see what, what happens more broadly. There's going to be conversations now about strategic stability. Is this just going to be a, a chance for Moscow to, to make some sort of short-term grandstanding to try and make the point that, aha, we're discussing with the Americans because we are a great power? Or are they genuinely going to try and make, make some progress on some issues which actually are of mutual interest? We will have to see. The point is, Again, both principles have indicated to their armies of diplomats and negotiators that it is not just permitted, but encouraged for them to actually start getting together and seeing what, if anything, they can come up with. There was an interesting piece by uh, Alexander Baunov of the Carnegie Moscow Centre on their website. Uh, as usual, I'll put a link in the programme notes, in which he, I think, rather perceptively made the point that in some ways we're returning to Cold War-style geopolitics, which may sound terrible, because Cold War, we think of mutual assured destruction, proxy wars and such like. Well, hear me and, by, by proxy, him out. What it's getting at is that in the Cold War, yes, of course, both sides had a strong ideological programme and they were ultimately committed ostensibly to the globalization of their own ideology. In practice, though, they, after a certain point, came to accept that they were not going to convince the other. And therefore, instead, they had very, very pragmatic relations. They talked about issues that really mattered to them both. They didn't think, I mean, yes, there was always going to be a certain amount of uh, ideological posturing, but they didn't think that they, their goal was essentially to reshape the other through diplomatic negotiations. I mean, ultimately, they, they believed that history would, would work it out, that democracy slash Marxism-Leninism would just naturally and organically succeed. But in the meantime, for their diplomacy, they relied on professionals talking on pragmatic issues. And that may well be, I think, to be blunt, the best we can hope for. And this might have advanced that prospect a little closer. 
I found just as a little side point to close on. It's really interesting that, I mean, this, this was clearly a very big deal from a foreign policy slash national security perspective. Nikolai Patrushev, Secretary of the Security Council, ultra hawk, and as regular listeners would know, something of a mini obsession of mine, has not, as near as I can tell, made any public statement about what happened. I'm sure it will come in due course. But we've had him visiting um, you know, Space Centre and such like, but nothing. A man who does not tend to be shy about expressing his own opinions has not commented. Now, I'm not trying to make too much of that. I don't mean to say, oh, he's clearly fuming or, or anything like that. But I think it does emphasise the extent to which I think that this was, quite frankly, a summit which seemed to me to be more orchestrated by the Foreign Ministry than the Security Council Secretariat. And it could only have done so because Putin decided that that was the advice he was going to listen to. It will be interesting to see in the future if we actually have any more straws in the wind, because historically, since 2014, the diplomats and the foreign ministry have been largely sidelined, and p people like Patrushev, the hawks, have been that much more powerful. Again, I really don't want to make too much of this. I don't want to suggest there's some sort of grand turn or whatever. But it, I think it is interesting to, because it highlights the degree to which there continues to be an internal debate within the Kremlin. And yes, the hawks, both domestically and internationally, tend to be in the ascendant. And frankly, Putin tends himself to side more with them. But nonetheless, whatever else one can say about him, and I'm going to be criticising him in, the, in part two, so I suppose for the sake of balance, I can, I can say something positive in part one. He also has 21 years of hands-on experience in dealing with, what, five American presidents? To say nothing of umpteen other leaders on the world stage. At some point, you have to begin to organically have acquired a certain amount of understanding of these, this world by osmosis, if nothing else. And I think Putin made the right calls. And fortunately for him, so too did Biden. So, yes, generally speaking, this was as good as we can expect. Unfortunately, as I'll talk about after the break, not quite the same with coronavirus in Russia. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. So when it comes to COVID, things aren't looking that great in Russia at the moment. There are, according to sort of most statistics, about five and a half million confirmed or suspected cases. But more to the point, caseload is up 23% nationally. And in Moscow, certainly yesterday, it was up 46% week on week, which is pretty ter terrifying, especially when the news is that 90% of these cases are the Indian or Delta variant. Though there are actually some even beginning to wonder if there's, if there's a Moscow variant at work or not. Well, we'll have to wait and see. Now, the official total of deaths worldwide since, sorry, nationwide since the beginning of the uh, pandemic is 130,000. 
But actually, if one looks at Rostat's own figures, as of the end of April, they were talking at about 270,000. Now, part of the problem is that, look, on the one hand, look, they have an excellent vaccine in Sputnik V, although they also have a pretty appalling vaccine in the form of Epivac Corona. Very, very dubious that. It seems to be that after nine months, a half of the people who, are t- who take Epivac Corona actually have no antibodies at all. But the point is, on the whole, what people are being offered is, is Sputnik V. But despite the fact that supplies are free, supplies are plentiful, that the government is desperate to vaccinate people. In Moscow, only 13% have taken it up. And generally speaking, 60% of the Russian population say that they would not take the vaccine at all. Now, why is this? Yeah, I mean, there is, first of all, still something of a tradition of rather bizarre folk remedies, uh, folk assumptions about health and disease. Um, I mean, you just try and stop uh, a babushka from closing the, the window on a bus or similar, because as we all know, drafts are the source of all ailments. There's also a degree of blowback from early disinformation that the Russians either directly carried out, probably, unfortunately, but at the very least did nothing to to quell. Now, this is largely aimed at the West. It was largely aimed at the Western vaccines, particularly Pfizer. Um, But the trouble is, again, we all operate within a single information space these days, and a fair amount of that has trickled back and obviously been metastasized by the fact that Russians are used to their own government lying to them after all it has for years, indeed decades. Now, Peskov, the presidential spokesman, I mean, he, he also blamed Russians' legal nihilism. I mean, if you're going to just come up with a phrase, I mean, couldn't you come up with something a little bit more exciting, like, I don't know, existential ennui or whatever? But anyway, it's probably not just simply that, that, that Russians get what they deserve, though thank you very much indeed for that, Peskov. It's not least that, because also many of the institutions of the, of the Russian state haven't really been pulling their weight properly. I mean, the Russian Orthodox Church, until really quite recently, was still very much... Uh, putting out a rather ambivalent message about vaccination. And Putin himself, I mean, let's be honest, this is a man, we've never seen him wearing a mask, to the best of my knowledge. He's never, it's never been said quite what vaccine he's had. I have a a deep suspicion that he and many other figures within the sort of the high elite were the beneficiaries of of Pfizer vaccines brought in from, from elsewhere. But that's, I'm sure, very, very unfair of me. But one way or the other, the institutions have largely failed. The national level institutions have largely failed. And so, once again, who steps in and takes the lead but the mayor of Moscow, Sabyanin. And he's just asserted that 60% of all service sector workers, so that's uh, you know people who are working in, in shops and cafes and whatever, who are working in a public-facing role, have to have the vaccine, that it is actually compulsory and that employers have to decide who is is going to take them. Now, he pushed this forward, even though actually Putin seems opposed to the idea. Um, certainly sort of Peskov was, was suggesting it. And also, frankly, that most people are, are very hostile to the idea. 
they don't like the state telling them they have to take this vaccine that they think is going to you know, embed them with a microchip or make them sterile or do God knows whatever else. But nonetheless, Sabiani has taken the chance and realising what's happening in the, in, in the city, he's pushing this through. And it's interesting that there are other uh, localities that are beginning to take notice of this. I mean, for example, Magadan is thinking of, of following his lead. So it's really striking how far there has been this abdication of the centre. And it's not just Putin. I mean, one can look, for example, at uh, Prime Minister Mishustin government, which again is really not pulling its weight in this, particularly if one looks at uh, Tatyana Galikova, the Deputy Prime Minister for Health and Social Provision. Well, she gave a briefing on Friday, actually when I'm recording this, Friday the 18th of June, uh, and what was she talking about? Well, primarily she was suggesting that revaccination of people who'd already been vaccinated should take place after 12 months. And she encouraged Russians who were going to be traveling and above all holidaying abroad to take vaccinations. But more broadly, I mean, she was doing bloody little for the basic point, which is just a hammer home that everyone, every adult certainly, ought to be taking the vaccine. And it's there for the taking. Now, why is this? At the risk of sounding a little bit glib, what is the point of an authoritarianism if you can't even make your own people protect themselves against death? And it's a stark contrast to all the new measures on anything political. There, now that this regime has no problem at all constraining people's rights, limiting their freedoms. But this is, I think, not simply something about politics versus health. And it's certainly not about a, an uncaring government laughing at the downtrodden masses. There is real concern in the government, and especially because of the potential economic and political costs. But they're still not doing anything. Now, why is this? Well, my suspicion is, first of all, that Putin himself does become, I think it's fair to say, paralysed about problems, about challenges, where he can't see a way to a guaranteed or at least probable win. And this, this is a sort of precisely the kind of topic that is totally outside his comfort zone and his areas of expertise. Pandemics, all the uncertainties about the, the different trade-offs which, with which every government is grappling these days. Do you shut down the economy with all the attendant costs in order to try and block the transmission of the virus? Do you actually accept a certain level of hospitalisation and even death as the price for continued economic activity, where is the, the balance between them? I hesitate to call it a sweet spot because it's actually a very, very difficult and, and frankly, you know, imponderable um, dilemma. He doesn't know. And, and again, I think this is always one of the interesting things. I think one, one, of the, one of the fascinating things that I think any biographer, particularly when it's the posthumous biographies that can hopefully dig into papers and such like we'll, we'll have to grapple with is actually how far Putin doesn't like making decisions at all, especially tough ones. But anyway, so Putin himself wants to keep himself out of it. Um, you know, he has his antiviral tunnel that people have to walk through before they meet him, um, where they sort of are carefully sprayed with suitable antiviral agents. And likewise, politically, in some ways, he has buried himself in an antiviral bunker. 
As for the government, the national government itself, I think they are unwilling to make what could be a potentially very, very dangerous judgment call on what is, after all, you know, potentially very unpopular issues, and especially in the lead up to the September Duma elections. Things that actually involve, you know, are you going to precisely force un- unpopular measures on a public that we know can be and is already restive? A public that has come gone to the streets on issues ranging from road tolls to pension reform. And also measures that in theory could also have massive economic costs. I mean, they're desperately trying to find ways of, of spending their way to achieving at least some results on Putin's big national projects. And they're also going to have to have a pretty substantial war chest ready to buy themselves the results that they want to get for the September elections. So again, in this case, I don't think I just simply think that without any kind of signal from above, they are themselves paralysed. And so, well, everything, the decision the responsibility is dumped on local leaders, people like Sabyanin. And in the process, it does create this strange political vacuum. I mean, it, it is perverse to think about this. You have, on the one hand, a ruthless authoritarian regime, one that has become much more authoritarian in the past year. And yet, at the same time, it has in some ways, allowed a vacuum to emerge. And politics, like nature, abhors a vacuum. This may hit, in due course, Mishustin's kind of image as the technocratic manager of the country. I have no idea if it will ultimately hurt or help Sabianin's political status. But honestly... I have to say, I think he's turning out to be one of the heroes of Russia's pandemic, not least because I don't think he knows if it's going to hurt or help his political standing. But nonetheless, he's doing it. He's doing what has to be done. We can criticise the Russian government, and we should, for its brutal repressions, for its international adventurism. But maybe more corrosive than all of that is not incompetence, but irrelevance. That in the face of what is a truly serious challenge for the nation as a whole, it has demonstrated a willful, determined and, in context, murderous irrelevance. And so it's a shame that after being able to present a rather upbeat part one, I have to end on such a downbeat part two. But nonetheless, such is the nature of the world and certainly such is the nature of modern Russia. Thank you, as ever, for listening. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. (laughs) 